to the Development Policy Centre podcast. In this episode, we bring you a recording of a recent event at our centre with World Bank Vice President for Human Development, Keith Hansen. In a public lecture, he discussed the role of the bank in addressing global public health challenges. Uh, well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thanks for coming on a uh, cold uh, Canberra spring afternoon. Uh, I know there's a uh, we didn't have a lot of notice to organise this event, so it's good to see uh, such a good turnout, uh, especially at the end of semester. Um, when a lot of, uh, I know a lot of people who would have come have already uh, headed off to do their, uh, to do their research. Uh, my name is Stephen House, and uh, I direct the Development Policy Centre. We're part of the Crawford School. We work on aid and development and with a special focus on the Pacific and PNG region. And uh, we're, uh, host, we're hosting uh, the, uh, this public lecture. Uh, so, as always, let's begin by acknowledging the first Australians, the traditional owners of the land on which we're meeting, and by paying our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal people, past and present. Uh, so, the topic for today is Global Health and the World Bank, Recent Events and Developments. And our speaker is Mr. Keith Hansen, who's the Vice President of the Human Development, of Vice President of Human Development uh, for the World Bank Group. Uh, Keith's uh, visiting Australia, so welcome. This is your first time here, uh, meeting with uh, DFAT. Um, but we're very happy you made time to come and talk to us. There's a lot of interest in aid and development uh, more broadly in Canberra and especially on global health. So it's great to be able to um, uh, meet with you and learn from you. Uh, as you'll see from the, uh, the flyer we put out, uh, Keith has a, a lot of experience in this area. He hasn't just been uh, parachuted in as vice president uh, in an area he knows nothing about. I'm sure that never happens in the World Bank and certainly hasn't happened. <laughs> in this case, uh, I'd say he's uh, got lifelong experience, uh, in fact, uh, in this area, having served previously as the World Bank Human Development Director for Latin America and the Caribbean. And before that, uh, had the role as the head of the AIDS campaign team for Africa. Uh, which clearly was a very pivotal position. Uh, so we're looking very much to hearing from you, Keith, and uh, we've got an hour, so just leave us some time for questions. I'm sure there'll be a few. Uh, please join with me in welcoming Keith Hansen. Thank you very much for the warm welcome. Thank you to all of you. It is... Um, Great to be here down under uh, because it is winter where I'm coming from, and unfortunately I brought a bit of winter with me in my voice. So my apologies for the laryngitis. I will do my best to overcome it, but um, just hold up a hand if you can't hear me. I'm going to try to fight through this. Um, it's also great to be here because Australia has really been a major shaper and a contributor to global development and a key partner both to developing countries and to the World Bank in our role as a major supporter of developing countries. So we are very grateful for the leadership of Australia and of all the great minds of Australians and those who attend Australian um, universities. And I'm especially pleased to be here because I'm a graduate of a public policy school myself, and I think this is a superior education for the kind of work that we do, the multidisciplinary focus, the emphasis on bringing together um, different ways of thinking about things is essential to solving the kind of problems we face in the world today. So um, as many of you are going to help shape Australia's global engagement or global engagement in general, um, it's great to have such a diverse audience. Um, today I want to reflect a bit on some of the recent events uh, in global health and primarily the, um, the outbreak of Ebola and its implications for health security um, and talk about the links of, between this and global poverty and um, global security in general because we see very tight linkages here and feel it's important, imperative really, that we capitalize on um, this tragedy in order to help reduce or, or eliminate the chance of further such tragedies. I'll talk a little bit about how the World Bank Group is addressing these issues, but um, I'm not here to do a commercial. I'm really here to talk more about the importance of the issue and of everybody working together um, to try to resolve it. Um, first, just a word or two of background on the bank, <clears throat> in case any of you don't know. Um, we are commemorating Remembrance Day today here in Australia, and 
around the world for the sacrifice of millions in the war to end all wars, which of course didn't. And so at the end of the next war, um, very enlightened leadership around the world recognized that uh, what had gone wrong was a vast collective failure in global security, in global economics, in global trade regimes, and they set out literally to build a new world order um, some 70 years ago. And the World Bank was part of that great mosaic of institutions and approaches that was created to help try to resolve the underlying conditions that had um, led the world to go so far astray. Um, and today, I think we face a similar set of compelling global challenges, um, and perhaps a bit less catastrophic than <clears throat> World War, but um, um, perhaps equally challenging just by their sheer magnitude, including, of course, climate change, um, the highest level of uh, refugees we've seen since World War II, um, and the growing rise of um, volatility, natural disasters, and, um, and epidemic disease. So we have no shortage of challenges on our own, and we really need to um, come together to address them. Um, the bank is the world's largest um, single multilateral source of finance and advice and technical support to developing countries, and we cover virtually the entire range of uh, development sectors from agriculture to infrastructure to health, education, macroeconomics, governance, um, virtually anything you can think of. And we have two primary goals that have been recently endorsed by our entire leadership, of which Australia is a proud member. Um, the first is to try to eliminate extreme poverty by the year 2030, and the other is to boost shared prosperity, which we define as the incomes of the poorest 40% around the world. So it's both an absolute agenda of poverty and a relative agenda of equity um, to help um, capitalize on the tremendous economic growth and prosperity of recent years and the great momentum that we have now uh, against poverty to try to finish the job in some sense in the coming 15 years. The governments of 188 countries are our owners, including Australia. They are shareholders and our partners. And the low- and middle-income countries, among those, are also our clients and the countries that we exist to serve. And we um, provide them a tremendous amount of finance to address their development needs. But equally important, we provide them with um, our advice, with the access that um, we have, and with the global knowledge that we can help to um, marshal and galvanize from around the world to help them develop strategic plans, to um, share global knowledge of what has worked and what hasn't in development, um, and to provide advice and technical assistance on the design and implementation, monitoring and evaluation of their various programs. So it's a very broad agenda. We have expertise from um, all of these sectors, a tremendous amount of experience. And yet, of course, we are only one among many, many development partners, and the list grows every year, and that is a wonderful thing. So we're more optimistic than ever about the chances for um, addressing the great global challenges um, that we face. Um, a key part of our agenda, which is um, true to our original mandate but has held true over the decades, is that we are also here to help safeguard countries against shocks, um, whether they're economic shocks or natural disasters or, in the case of um, the past year, uh, an epidemic disaster. Um, and this is becoming <clears throat> more and more apparent um, as a need for all of us to work together on. And with the Ebola crisis still fresh in our minds, we feel that pandemic preparedness and response is now one of the leading concerns for the world, both because of its importance and because in all the epidemics of recent years, the world has collectively and continually failed to build in the preparedness that we need um, to prevent or cope with the next such shocks. And this time we should not, cannot afford to make the same mistake. The bank group has been one of the leading financiers of the effort um, against Ebola. We worked very closely with the governments in Guinea, Liberia, and Sierra Leone, um, and with our partners, bilateral partners, UN multilateral organizations, civil society, and the private sector um, throughout the crisis. We've committed more than 1.6 billion U.S. dollars to uh, both the response and the recovery, um, including 1.2 billion from the International Development Association, which is our fund for the poorest. Um, and $400 million from the International Finance Corporation, which is our private sector arm. This comes on top of more than $2 billion U.S. dollars in debt relief that we had already provided to the three countries, which has freed up about $75 million U.S. dollars per year um, in debt payments that they've been able to um, repurpose for investments in um, 
and core sectors. Now, obviously, the primary cost of this uh, tragedy last year was the human lives lost and the tremendous suffering that it imposed. Um, more than 11,000 lives lost and obviously a great deal of, of grief for the families and communities of those. Um, but it has also wiped out a great deal of development gains <clears throat> in the three countries. And these were among the fastest growing economies in the world before Ebola hit. This is um, not a very well-known fact, but it was true. Um, but our recent estimates are that these three countries will now lose more than $2 billion U.S. dollars in foregone economic growth just this year as a result of the epidemic. Uh, and, of course, that could have been uh, even worse. And the crisis is not yet completely over. Um, this past weekend, Sierra Leone joined Liberia in being declared free of Ebola, but Guinea is still reporting additional cases. And even one case of Ebola is too many. Um, this virus, of course, has a history of resurgence, and we have to remain vigilant even when things look promising. So unless we get to and sustain zero cases and zero transmission over a sustained period of time, um, the health of the citizens and the economies of these three countries, the region, um, and the world beyond are going to remain at risk. So for the part of the World Bank, we are very committed to do our part to help these countries to reignite their, their economies and to recover. But beyond that, um, it's imperative that we all learn the lessons from this crisis, which are applicable to many, if not all, countries around the world, including many of Australia's neighbors um, here in Asia and the Pacific region. So one of the key lessons is that every country in the world needs a strong and resilient health system, irrespective of its income. And this means a system that is well-financed, well-designed, and well-equipped to deliver access to quality essential services and preventive public health services, such as disease surveillance, diagnostic capability, um, as well as a capacity to treat and contain any future outbreaks. Nigeria, Senegal, and Mali are also poor countries, and they are um, neighbors of the three that were affected. But they were able to contain the spread of Ebola when cases crossed their borders because they'd already made some of these critical investments in their health systems. They're not perfect. They have a long way to go, but they were strong enough to, um, to beat back the epidemic thanks to some of these investments. And I want to underscore the importance of investing as part of this in a well-trained and robust health workforce that can provide quality care at all levels, both from doctors and nurses, midwives, and crucially, community health workers, who are often the first line of defense and of information in a crisis such as this. So this is why the bank group is working with the three countries to strengthen their systems and to grow their health workforces um, as both part of a, just good investment in general and as part of the lesson um, of this crisis. Now, of course, a strong health system also depends crucially on smart investments outside the health sector that to help can, um, build healthy societies. This includes roads, transport, and electricity to make clinics accessible and to help them function, and education to train health workers to keep girls in school, to delay adolescent pregnancy, and a host of other <coughs> secondary benefits. So health is really um, a sort of all-joined-in agenda, um, even for the poorest countries. Globally today, um, more than 400 million people lack access to basic health services, and 100 million are forced into poverty or deeper into poverty every year because of health care expenditures alone. This, our, our collective aim, therefore, has to be universal health coverage so that every woman, every child, everybody has access to the essential quality care and will not be forced into poverty um, as a result of simply having to buy the essential health care that they need. <clears throat> Many countries in Asia, from Japan to Thailand, have already led the way in achieving universal health coverage for their citizens, understanding this is crucial both to health and um, development and economic security. Others have put universal coverage as an explicit policy goal. Just in the last decade, um, some 24 countries have reached 2.4 billion people to at least some extent with um, health coverage. This is a um, tremendous sea change over previous decades, and it really reflects um, a great wave of understanding and commitment to this issue. But it remains very, very much an unfinished agenda that urgently needs more support. The World Bank Group is working with countries in this region at all income levels, from China to Indonesia, Myanmar to Laos, uh, to help them make the investments and the reforms that they need, both to achieve and to sustain effective universal coverage. And we're very pleased to be partnering with Australia in many of these efforts. 
Um, for example, securing financing and delivery of routine immunization for young children or fighting the growing epidemic of non-communicable diseases in the Pacific, which has actually moved with dramatic and um, unsettling speed um, in a region that previously did not have um, nearly as much of it. So health systems are one crucial lesson um, that are imperative for all countries. Forgive me. Um, a second lesson is that informed citizens and empowered communities are the most effective front line of preparedness and response. One major driver in this epidemic <clears throat> was unsafe burials. And instructions from authorities regarding safe burials, which required abandoning traditional rituals of touching the corpses of loved ones, were met with suspicion or even with outrage by aggrieved family members and communities. Um, and it wasn't until communities and traditional and faith leaders were engaged in directing and shaping the messaging and the response that we saw behaviors change and the situation begin to turn around. This is a lesson we'd also learned from the AIDS epidemic, where communities were crucial in translating and conveying information in the ways that would be effective. So as we think about our future investments in global health, we also have to keep in mind the human angle and the importance of community and individual empowerment in this. And this is a lesson that's relevant for every country at every income level. A third lesson <clears throat> is from Ebola is how a health crisis can very quickly become a broader development crisis. This is not a health issue only by any means. Um, in addition to the economic impact that I mentioned already, um, in these countries, more than one million people were put at risk of hunger because of the impact on agriculture, and five million children were out of school for the better part of a year. Typically, if a child is out of school that long, a large share of them never go back. So the impact of this can actually be lifelong and dramatic for the life prospects um, of these families. And of course, traditional safety nets were greatly strained or torn apart outright. So our support to the Ebola-affected countries has not only been for health services, but also to provide seeds for planting, <clears throat> ensuring the safe reopening of schools, and cash transfers for Ebola survivors and their families to help buffer the shocks uh, that they endured well beyond the immediate uh, health impacts. A fourth lesson is that the entire world has to be better prepared and respond much more quickly to future disease outbreaks. It took months before the international response swung into action this time, and even longer before containment efforts began to take hold. Resources have to begin to flow within hours or days, not months. If there were a military or a monetary disaster tomorrow, the world would actually mobilize men, material, and money in a matter of hours or days. But at the microbial level, we still don't have a response mechanism that is commensurate to that challenge. So this is an urgent task that we all have to take on together. A speedy response could save thousands or millions of lives and billions of dollars in development impact. And this has to be the greatest lesson that we take away from this crisis, is the resolve to put in place the foundation um, to prevent something like this from happening again. Um, the human costs, the economic costs, could be absolutely catastrophic. I mean, to take um, an extreme but not unrealistic example, um, modeling has suggested that a fast-moving airborne disease, and remember Ebola was not airborne, it's actually very close contact required to transmit it, but a fast-moving airborne disease like the 1918 flu could kill more than 33 million people in 250 days. And the economic costs of a severe outbreak like that could be as much as 5% of global GDP, 4 trillion US dollars. So this could be um, an absolute disaster for the entire global economy and not just for the health um, of a handful of countries. Um, and this was not our first wake-up call. Ebola was um, only the latest in a series of epidemics. In fact, from 1997 to 2009, there have been six major outbreaks of fatal zoonoses, animal-borne diseases that have been transmitted to humans, including SARS, avian, and H1N1 flus, which together have cost an estimated 80 billion U.S. dollars in global economic losses. Um, <clears throat> and we've also seen how the spread of MERS, which is highly infectious, from Saudi Arabia to um, the Republic of Korea, which is a high-income country with a strong health system, actually contributed to a decline in that country's GDP to a six-year low. So this is by no means only um, a poor developing country issue. 
What we need is a smarter and better coordinated global epidemic, epidemic preparedness and response system that can draw upon the expertise of all the relevant players, obviously the World Health Organization uh, at its core, but many others as well. Outbreaks are inevitable. This is simply a fact of life on Earth. But how severe they come and how far they spread is entirely up to us. And containing them before they turn into something deadly and costly and global is the challenge that we all need to take on today. This is going to require preset arrangements, close coordination between national and local governments, international bodies, the private sector, and non-governmental organizations. It needs a supply chain that can be up and running in no time and rapid response health teams that can deploy almost immediately. And we have to be able to get emergency funding out the door at the first sign of a crisis. If a fast-moving epidemic hits, the traditional approach of issuing fundraising appeals and passing the hat um, is not going to be good enough. Countries were immensely generous in the Ebola crisis, um, but the lack of any mechanism, the lack of prepayment, the lack of any sort of insurance meant that this had to be built up one dollar, one country at a time, um, at a great cost in terms of time and lives. So at the request of the G20 leaders who met here in Brisbane um, a year ago, uh, the bank group has been working with the World Health Organization and other institutions on one part of the solution, which is what we call a pandemic emergency finance facility. <clears throat> the idea of this facility is to establish a new global finance mechanism um, so that when the next global health emergency strikes, the world can quickly deploy the money, the trained health workers, the equipment, the medicines, and whatever else is needed to try to thwart and stop a potential pandemic. It would deliver financing swiftly, almost immediately, to governments and to international partners and implementers once a pre-agreed, objectively verifiable trigger was invoked. Governments have used this model very effectively to manage climate and natural disaster risks, such as earthquakes and hurricanes, uh, and we feel it's very promising to adapt something like this for epidemics. Alongside the development of the PEF, we're also helping design regional disease surveillance capacity in West Africa, the system actually. Um, we're applying our experience in recent years building uh, regional lab networks in East Africa and Central Asia where cross-border collaboration on public health threats is working effectively and um, which model needs to be spread elsewhere. During the avian and the human flu uh, epidemics, we worked with a number of countries across Asia, including Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, China, and Mongolia, to bolster their lab capacity and enhance coordination among the government agencies. This is a good start, but the region can and needs to do more to strengthen its ability to respond to future outbreaks. So that leads to the fifth and final lesson that we take from Ebola, which is the critical importance of leadership and political will for health security. Leadership is key at the global level and at the national levels. The global response effort played a key role in mobilizing resources that eventually turned the tide on Ebola. But it was strong government-led coordination efforts in each country that paved the way to that. And it's local and national leadership with well-coordinated support from the global community that will be critical to ensuring the right investments are made to strengthen the health systems and to be prepared before the next outbreak strikes. And in that vein, the biggest challenge for any country, for every country, is to maintain the political will and the commitment to invest in, to maintain strong core public health functions year in, year out, when there isn't a crisis, when there isn't a looming epidemic, when the memory of the last one has long faded, across government, across administrations, and to stay continually vigilant. When there's no epidemic raging and when there are so many other global challenges, we find that investment in public goods like this tend to wane. Surveillance and preparedness often fall through the cracks in favor of what appear to be more urgent priorities. So in this vein, we're very pleased that Australia's Department for Foreign Aid and Trade has recognized this and has identified health sector security as a priority area for its investments and for its attention. And this is where all of you have a role to play and helping to ensure that Australia and the world at large to continue to support these kinds of investments in health security, which is really global security, both here and abroad. We want to make sure that the world does not forget these lessons of Ebola, 
um, and is much better prepared for the next time around. So just as we built a whole mosaic of global security and economic security after the Second World War, we can now begin to build um, greater global security in the face of health threats, in the face of climate threats, and all the challenges that we face um, in this century. As you know, this has been a landmark year for development. <clears throat> Just two months ago, the UN General Assembly adopted the Sustainable Development Goals, the Global Goals, um, which are 17 goals that stretch everything from ending poverty to ending hunger, to providing universal health coverage, to learning for all, and many more. It's a long list, it's a complex list, but every item on that list is vital, and this has been very painstakingly negotiated and agreed to by all the member states of the United Nations system. So they truly are global goals, and they enjoy a tremendous amount of momentum and support, and they are the right agenda for moving forward in this century. And this is the first time ever that we actually have a globally agreed agenda that will enable everybody on the planet to live a healthy and productive life that is full of opportunity and where we all agree what the priorities should be. These goals are not going to be easy to reach. <clears throat> There'll be no end of challenges in the next 15 years, but they are achievable. And they build on the tremendous progress that we've seen in the human development over the past 15 or 25 years. Um, the absolute number of child deaths, for instance, has fallen now for several years in a row for the first time in all of recorded human history. Global poverty is down by more than half. And on current trends, we're going to see extreme poverty dip below 10% this year around the globe, again for the first time in human history. As our president, Dr. Jim Kim, has said, this is the best news in the world today. Until 200 years ago, poverty was a simple fact of human life on Earth. For the last 200 years, it has been um, a greatly inequitable um, fact of life on Earth. But we now have it within our hands, the possibility of actually eliminating extreme poverty, um, well within the lifetimes of everybody in this room. So last month, um, the bank has re, um, reaffirmed its commitment to this, noting these numbers and our commitment to work with um, all our partners, including Australia, to keep the world on track to end extreme poverty and address all these other tremendous challenges that we face. So this generation, and for those of you who are students, it means your generation can be the one that finally put a nail in the coffin of global poverty um, and built a world that is um, suited to the challenges that we face in this century to ensure greater prosperity and opportunity for everybody. So thank you very much for your efforts, your attention today. Thank you for tolerating my voice and look forward to discussion with you. Thank you. Uh, thanks very much, Keith. Thank you. Covered a lot in a short period, leaving good time for questions. I know I've got some, but I'll uh, give everyone else an opportunity first. Who wants to start kick us? Get the ball rolling. Yes, Ian. Uh, thank you very much. Very, very useful presentation. Very interesting. In terms of the pandemic preparedness. The World Bank has some very good policies and interventions on fragile and conflict-affected states, and in many ways they might be the sort of the either the epicenter or the weak link in in a pandemic preparedness. How, how do you think the World Bank and therefore Australia in support could actually deal or respond in those sort of circumstances? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Should we take a few? Yeah. Okay, sure. <coughs> yeah. Thank you very much. I'm Greg Ellis. I'm so about to do a review of um, some nutrition trust funds in Pakistan. And I'm very interested you mentioned uh, reflecting on the joined up agenda. And one of the struggles has been to get other, especially government agencies, to recognise their role in this beyond the health departments. So if you say to a secretary of a government department in Pakistan, that's where I've been, uh, you know, agriculture, infrastructure, industry have a role here. They tend to know it's a, it's a health issue, it's not an education issue. Do, do you have examples where the bank has been able to mobilise interest in a much broader way than has occurred in the past and see these things as not just health issues? Mm -hmm. Okay, why don't we take those two? Mm -hmm. Sorry, that's one. Um, thank you again. Um, I wanted to really comment more on uh, NCDs between the Pacific and, and pathways that you see to actually address them. Mm -hmm. Okay. Good. Um, so, yeah, multi-sector efforts, I think, are gaining um, currency, and 
Um, nutrition is actually a very good example because this clearly cannot be solved by any sector working alone. And this is one reason it's been so difficult to address it. Um, again, you know, an urgent and tragic priority, 165 million kids stunted, you know, their potential permanently um, truncated in life um, by uh, something that um, is preventable. And we do have a global goal on this, but, uh, you know, we're moving too slowly. But a number of countries have actually been able to work um, in a joined-up agenda to do this. Um, in Peru, where we just had our annual meeting, this is actually a standout example. Um, uh, Ten years ago, they committed to trying to bring down their very surprisingly high and stagnant malnutrition rate. It was 28% um, stunting among under-fives in Peru, even though it was a middle-income country that enjoyed many years of, of good economic growth. Um, and they went about it in a way that emphasized a results-based approach so they would be measuring um, progress all the way along, and, and the only metric of success would be the results and not you know, just the inputs or the, um, the sort of commitments made. Um, and that brought together, a, 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 I wouldn't say a large, but an appropriate number of sectors beyond health, including education, social protection, um, agriculture to some extent, and others. Um, and that was um, based as much on a political economy analysis of what it would take to get these to work together as it was on anything that was hyper-technical. Uh, and the results were extraordinary. In seven years, rates came down by half. So 14% it stands today. And this is maybe the fastest rate we've ever seen of reduction in malnutrition. <clears throat> Um, but it was a real testament to uh, the committedness. And again, leadership played a strong role in this, strong signals from the top, um, an indication that every sector that could contribute to this would be recognized for it and they could all share in the credit. So um, it is doable. We are seeing more commitment to this. Uh, and in the bank side, we've recently reorganized ourselves to facilitate working across practice lines, sector lines, to these sorts of agendas, because many of the challenges we face um, in health in this century are of that ilk, um, and particularly NCDs, obviously. Um, in the United States, actually, it's been estimated that um, the, the preventable causes of death or the amenable mortality, only 10% of it is actually subject to action by the sector alone. You know, the rest has to do with <clears throat> with genetics, environment, behavior, and other things. Um, and it's probably not that different in many other countries. So in NCDs, um, we see this clearly as a dominant agenda now in every country that is not still grappling with um, high levels of communicable disease. Um, and in some ways, these are going to be more difficult because they do have to do with <clears throat> whole patterns of development, spatial development, urban development, diet, food policy, tobacco policy, and a host of things. The good news is it turns out that a small handful of policies in a limited number of areas can make a tremendous impact um, on NCDs. We did a report some years ago in Brazil that estimated, I think, that the six or seven leading causes, um, all of which were amenable to public policy, could reduce NCD incidents by something like 53%, if I recall correctly. Um, and in the Pacific, in between um, diet and inactivity and alcohol and tobacco alone, I think one could make a big uh, dent. And I've heard there's been good progress um, in tobacco policy in many countries, and other areas are, of course, also amenable to action. But um, this is an urgent agenda, and NCDs are ultimately far costlier in economic and development terms um, than some of the, uh, the earlier diseases. So this is something to which we're putting a great deal of emphasis without in any way um, neglecting the, you know, the agenda of, of primary and communicable diseases. Um, <coughs> fragile and conflict-affected states, this is a corporate priority for the bank group, and we are trying to um, facilitate um, a more effective way of um, working in these countries. And it's true, I think, that um, some of the conditions that <coughs> uh, typify fragility also give rise to a weakness of health systems and other things. So we are working now um, with our partners to find more effective ways of building capacity, building ownership, um, and picking things one piece at a time, building the core foundational skills and institutions that are needed, um, and using results-based approaches where the systems can actually justify themselves in terms that the citizenry can see and own, that the governments can feel that they've actually achieved something or making progress, where development partners can feel that they're um, 
investments are producing results, um, and so that can help actually both the institutions and the political cohesion and the development results all move hand in hand. We're doing a number of internal things that I won't bore you with, but to just facilitate our working in these environments. Um, and also by, by making it a corporate priority and putting it at one of the top of our commitments, it also gets higher level management attention, which makes it easier for us to work there. But again, here's an area, obviously, where major bilaterals such as Australia play um, a crucial role as well. <coughs> okay, I hope you can uh, withstand another round of questions. No, absolutely. absolutely. Health-wise, I mean. Mm -hmm. yeah. hey, thanks for the presentation. One thing you um, alluded to was that global health governance is a really crowded space these days. And, you know, you're absolutely right. We've seen this explosion in the number of um, state and non-state actors involved in global health and, co and coordinating global health responses <coughs> as a result is, is a big challenge. And um, you know, how does the bank, how's the bank sort of responded to this, especially in the context of um, the rise of the BRICS and more influences by um, some of these emerging uh, powers, um, flamethrower capitalists like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, it's better well for the private sector and so on. Um, yeah, what's, what's, what's the World Bank, how's the World Bank responding to this coordination problem? Mm -hmm. okay. And just following on from that, um, if I can just ask you a question about um, the relationship with the private public sector. Lights go off a certain um, time. Just hang on, please. Lights go off a certain time every day here. So. Yeah. <laughs> so I just That's have very to brief. go through the <laughs> lights. State of the art. On, on. <clears throat> Okay. And then we're back. <laughs> just looking particularly at the World Bank's documentation, there's a lot of um, a lot of your documents just look at either public or private and a simple dichotomy like that. Where do you see the NGO sector sitting in with that, and uh, and could be more done to sort of move it across to be more accommodated in that public sector, I guess, particularly the not for profit. Mm -hmm. And then uh, <laughs> Hi, I'm Mandy Giles, SPS Radio. I was interested in the, the comment you made about communication and how important that was and how it had to change. And I was just interested if you could give us some more information about it. Let's take those three. Okay. Um, yeah, so it's the global health space is far more crowded than it used to be, but <clears throat> I mean, I think we can only regard this as a salutary forgive the pun, um, development. Um, I mean, when I began work at the World Bank 25 years ago, global health didn't even exist, and the, the two words never went together. Um, it was not part of the development agenda. It was seen as a pure um, expenditure item. There was no global coordination or thinking. WHO, of course, was a global agency, and it fought valiantly to raise attention to these issues, but there was no such thing as a global development, and it took the tragedy of HIV-AIDS to actually create, a, you know, a true global health movement. So I think we can only welcome the fact that there is now so much interest and so much more money and attention and buy-in. Um, <clears throat> now, in the nature of these things, um, you know, the interest um, preceded any sort of greater coordination, but I think it's widely recognized now that we need coordination, not for its own sake, because... Um, you know, sort of contestability of ideas, different approaches is, is, you know, it's welcome and it's a very helpful way to reach its solutions. But the, the countries that have to process all of this support need a more coordinated way of engaging with their development partners. And there's wide agreement now that what's necessary is that every country own its own response, its own health program, that there be, you know, one kind of unified approach to this that the country has developed and it invites the development partners in and says, you're welcome to work with us in the agenda. Parts of it may interest you more than others. Um, we don't expect everybody to be engaged with all of it, but we can't have our country divided up into little fiefdoms of everybody coming in doing whatever they want, which unfortunately was um, the pattern at times in the past. So I think this is the, the key principle, country ownership and leadership, um, you know, as informed and um, advised by the support that um, and that they can get from other countries, learning from other experience, but um, and then mechanisms that can help to um, channel the finance in more predictable ways, in more coordinated ways, try to keep more of it on budget so the countries are not facing wild volatility in the financing from year to year, um, which is a nightmare to manage and also makes it very difficult to do long-term investments because there's no certainty to the finance flows, um, but also <clears throat> enables 
um, more coordinated um, action and um, and you know fewer gaps, overlaps, and inefficiencies. So, I mean, broadly speaking, I think this is what it takes, and the bank has been um, you know one of the voices. Um, advocating in favor of more coordinated approaches, and we certainly try to conduct ourselves that way. And by design, it's um, it's easier for us in a way because um, we do take the long view. We don't have, you know, turnover of administrations in terms of our political environment. We're one bank all the time. Uh, we work with the countries on their cycle and typically four to five-year country partnership plans. And so it's easier for us to operate this way. But I think a lot of other agencies now are um, are recognizing the need to um, come under a coordinated framework. Um, NGOs, in fact, the whole non-government sector, whether it's commercial or private or faith-based, um, are pivotal players. I mean, you know, half of health services in many countries are delivered by somebody other than government. Um, and this is crucial to, um, to access, it's crucial to quality, and it is um, a pivotal part of the system. So I think it's widely recognized that um, these actors have an important role to play and often are the fount of innovation. So <clears throat> we're very keen on um, working with all actors. And in fact, the way we approach this now, it's very much a joined up agenda where we are trying, in a sense, to crowd in all the resources, and I don't just mean financial resources, but all the actors. Um, the global health needs are far, far too vast to be met through overseas aid or external sources of finance. Even in the poorest countries, the vast majority just of finance for the system comes from the country itself, logically. Um, and certainly in middle-income countries, um, you know, it's a, sm a small single-digit percentage that comes from external partners. So the finance alone is... Um, is heavily domestic, and then of course the action is even more domestically driven. So um, a big part of this is to make sure that as much domestic resources as possible um, are being effectively used and that um, we're bringing in private sector resources as appropriate wherever possible and NGO and other um, non-governmental uh, bodies into this in a way that can uh, produce results, again, under the rubric of uh, an overall um, plan that the country can own, operate, that everybody can see, and that can generate meaningful and measurable results. Um, on communication, I think this is one constant lesson we've seen of the last <clears throat> 10 to 15 years. Um, uh, pick your epidemic. In HIV-AIDS, misinformation was a very powerful source of um, problems, uh, you know, the myths, the misconceptions, um, and the misunderstandings about HIV were very powerful impediments to effective action, and they were uh, very powerful facilitators of stigma and of fear, which, of course, are fatal, um, literally. Um, in um, SARS, obviously, the initial um, difficulty in getting accurate information led to all kinds of um, problems. Um, and only after more accurate and timely information came out was the world able to uh, respond appropriately. Likewise, in Ebola, in whatever epidemic, um, we have to give people the dignity of giving them ad, um, accurate information, information they can act on, um, and it's best if it's um, communicated in a way that is sensitive to local and cultural needs from people that they trust, not necessarily from abstract authorities at a distance or um, by mass media alone, but also by local community members, but um, information is life and death um, in an epidemic and, and even under less than emergency times. So and this is just a, it's a foundation of this, but it's very difficult to do, and we always run into the same problems, fear of, of scaring people away, et cetera, but um, it's, in the end, there's no alternative to this. And then accurate information, of course, can lead to more effective action, which will make the problem smaller over time. And, but it's, this is a, an absolute constant of the lessons that we've learned in every one of these situations. Okay, so with Larry, uh, I'd like to ask a kind of reverse explosion question. Um, and it's a bit Asia-Pacific centric. Just in looking at TV financing and the reason lately, um, a couple of things are clear. One is uh, there's always been a limit to, I think, the willingness of countries to borrow it on for health. As you said, as opposed to sort of hard wrecking and stuff. Um, what's happening though, uh, some of the other players are leaving. You know, those companies have got middle income status. Uh, PNG, Philippines, we're seeing it. A sudden bolt from the door by all sorts of entities, including Guardian and Global Fund. Um, so I guess that comes to the question where there is a financing gap, is it likely the bank will actually be able to meet it? Um, 
will countries borrow for health? Will you have the, I guess, the, uh, the bully pulpit to sell the finance agencies rather than just health ministries the need to make the investments you talked about before to become pandemics? Hmm. Um, well, you'd have to ask the countries whether they will borrow for health. Um, it's up to each of them, obviously. <clears throat> but, I mean, we can, the bank can certainly make the case for why this is a, a very strong development investment. <clears throat> I mean, it is not an expenditure. It is an investment. And um, depending on the nature of the investment, it can have extremely high returns, um, development returns, social returns. Many middle-income countries have borrowed extensively from the World Bank. Um, for health, um, including in Latin America, the region where I used to work. Um, it's actually, they're very small sums relative to their, uh, their own domestic spending or their economies, but they're, they're substantial sums for the World Bank, and they've had tremendous um, results by doing so. So we feel it's a strong development investment for any country that um, would like to use them that way. It's ultimately up to the countries. They're sovereign, and uh, the money is... Um, is you know, ultimately they, they repay it in one form or another. So it's up to them to decide. But we do feel that it's um, where there is a financing gap and this fits with their financing plan um, and they see this as a priority relative to the other things they might use it for, um, there's a very strong case to make for this. It's certainly not the case that um, just because the money is not free that it's not worth doing. Um, and, I mean, I think that's a bit of an old chestnut and a misconception about uh, the returns to these investments, um, and particularly if you factor in the non-health benefits um, and the sort of um, long-term effects of you know, investing effectively in these systems. It's very clear that they do have high payoffs. Um, I mean, in all humility, the World Bank alone can never meet the financing gap for almost any of these things just because the, the sums are so large. What we can do is be part of um, a broader solution. And one role, key role that the World Bank plays is to help leverage other financial resources by virtue of our um, you know, high fiduciary standards, our emphasis on strategy and sound frameworks and coordination. This also often helps to bring in resources from other partners, bilaterals, foundations, that can help to uh, reduce financing gaps further. But at a minimum, even where um, we're not providing part of the finance, we can provide part of the knowledge. And if a country chooses to invest more of its own resources, we can help make the case for it. Uh, and you're right that ultimately it's the finance authorities that need to be persuaded because they face just um, you know, so many overwhelming demands for investment and they have to make those trade-offs. So it can't just be the, the health sector making this case. But I think we've been um, influential in building a development case for health and not just a health case. Look, I might take my chance. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about Ebola, which was a big theme of your talk, and just uh, challenge you on, on a few points you made. Not that I'm an expert, but just some of the things I picked up. I mean, you said the bank's going into um, surveillance, and I mean, it's widely perceived the WHO sort of not so much missed the, were asleep, but they suppressed the news of Ebola. And is this a way to bypass the WHO because it can't be reformed? I guess that would be one point. On financing, you said it's modelled on the, um, this risk insurance with uh, catastrophic disasters which we have experience of in the Pacific, and I'd say it's a fairly mixed experience. It's, it's welcome, but it, the amounts of money are fairly small, and there was a famous case of Solomon Islands seeming to have a fairly major disaster but missing out on getting any funding. <coughs> so that would be the question on financing. And then finally, you mentioned financing wasn't really the issue. It's um, sort of you need a standing army, as it were, and that's very resonant with the Australian experience where MSF famously rejected aid funding because they said money wasn't the issue, it was uh, people. So how that seems to be this sort of fundamental problem and, and how is the bank addressing that? Mm -hmm. Don't take that or we have another question also from mm -hmm. Pamela. Yes. I just wondered, you, you mentioned the, um, the problems with governments not always being uh, that concerned about health, the problems, health often falls out the bottom. How would you suggest that World Bank or the other governments actually encourage governments to give greater consideration to health issues, bearing in mind that it has such impacts on health mm -hmm. and that it should incorporate mm -hmm. the activities of other government departments. Mm -hmm. Other questions? Perhaps your last chance. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. oh. Uh, 
all right, first, and my laryngitis may have made me hard to understand, so I need to correct a couple of things. I didn't say we're going into surveillance. We are not a technical agency. We don't have the, uh, the expertise to do the, uh, the technical work on this. We were saying that surveillance is a core public health function that every country needs to a certain extent. We are supporting the development of surveillance networks in West Africa and elsewhere through our finance, um, but the technical expertise is coming from others. And WHO, we are in no way trying to supplant or replace WHO. They have a, an important complementary function. They are the world's lead health agency, and we're working very much in partnership um, on this in West Africa with them, as well as around the world, and including on the development of uh, any new facility um, on pandemic. Um, and I think it's fair comment that the experience with um, some of these facilities has been mixed so far. Um, but our point is we think that there's, um, uh, there's proof of concept that these can be effective. And of course, they're being constantly perfected. And the fact that we have nothing at the moment um, leads us to think we, we need to take the lessons from these. And there may be other instruments. We may need a whole array of financing instruments. But in the Caribbean, there's the there's the CRIF. Um, we've had other mechanisms in other places that um, try to identify the risk and then come up with a, a sort of pre-financing model that will enable countries to be ready for this. So, um, you know, these are relatively new instruments. They're going to take time to perfect, but um, we think it's definitely worth the work that's going into it now to identify. And if for any reason they prove ineffective or unavailing, then we can move to the next thing. But thus far, this is, um, this is the most promising avenue we see. So we're working intensively with partners to to tease out whether it would work. It's not a perfect analog, of course. An epidemic is not an earthquake, and one would need different parametric triggers, et cetera. But there's a lot of um, hard work going into this. Um, <clears throat> and sorry, if I said money is not the issue, then I misspoke. Money, money is an issue. Um, but as important as the amount is the timing. Um, and the problem in, in the past has been because nobody is confident the money's going to come, um, it's hard for anybody to really be ready or have the army standing by because they look it'll be months before the money comes there are alternative uses we could be making of these things so um, we get a bit of a chicken and egg problem so the idea is if there were guaranteed that the money would be available in very short order that would create an inducement um, and facilitate um, the presence the existence of a, you know a quote-unquote standing army or the mechanisms necessary to deploy so um, i think that was the emphasis i wanted to make and um, as to the question of what the bank can do, it's, this is what we try to do um, in every sector, actually, is simply to build the, the economic case for, um, for different investments in different sectors and what makes the most sense and what is going to generate the highest return. I mean, ultimately, the um, authorities of every country are concerned with getting the most value for money. Um, from their own resources and the money that they um, get from others. And it's a matter of finding those areas that are going to generate um, the greatest returns. And here's a place where the bank has a good deal of expertise and a lot of experience. So it's simply making the case um, why these things matter. They do suffer, I think, from less visibility. It's hard to cut a ribbon on um, a child who is two centimeters taller as it is you know, a ribbon on a new big building or something. Um, and so politically, it's harder. And the, um, the payoffs have a different time cycle in some sense. You know, the beauty of investing in early childhood development is it will literally pay off beyond that child's lifetime into, you know, his or her own children. So it's intergenerational. Um, it's much longer term. And so um, countries may um, think it's better to invest in things that are shorter term. And heaven knows there are a whole host of investments that are vital. But one thing we can do is at least to help level the intellectual playing field and say um, these things are you know, equally powerful in terms of the returns that they will generate. And they may well save you money in these other investments that you've been making. So. Okay. Well, I think uh, had a very good uh, Q&A session. Uh, great talk. So thanks, everyone, for coming. And please join me in thanking. Thank you. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific, and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all the latest updates or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.